John the fourth chapter. We are studying our way chronologically through the life and ministry of Jesus. In John the fourth chapter, I'd like for us to read the first ten verses of the chapter. We are somewhat pressed for time this morning, and we will not nearly cover this as it needs to be, so I'm going to break it up into at least two sections. We'll cover the first ten verses this morning. John 4, verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew how the, how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Joseph's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat or food. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, who am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. It is exceedingly rare to find in the gospel accounts an extended dialogue between Jesus and an individual person. We have a lot of accounts of Jesus in the middle of discussion with groups his disciples, for instance, or with the Pharisees, or with the Jews. But very rarely do we have an account of what we would call a dialogue, extended dialogue between Jesus and an individual. But here in John chapter 3 and chapter 4, we find two such instances, rare as they are, we find two of them back to back. In the first verses of chapter 3, we find an extended discussion between Jesus and this man that we have hopefully by now are familiar with, named Nicodemus. Concerning the necessity of the new birth, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus responds with questions, how can that be, and so forth. But there is a rather extended discussion between Christ and Nicodemus. Now, as we go into John chapter 4, we find another extended discussion, this time between Jesus and this woman of Samaria that he encounters at the well outside the city of Sychar. So you understand that these are rare instances in the gospel record. And here, for some reason, we find two of them back to back, butted one right up against the other, an encounter with Nicodemus. And the discussion that went on there, and now a discussion that Jesus has with this woman at the well of Sychar, and the discussion that went on there. But a greater contrast between two individuals would be harder to, uh, impossible to imagine than the contrast between Nicodemus and this woman at the well. On the one hand, Nicodemus is a Jew. He's a card-carrying Jew, as we might say. He has his genealogy all straight. This woman, on the other hand, is a Samaritan. And we'll talk about how the Samaritans were viewed by Jews in just a moment. Her genealogy, if anything, is all messed up. He, on the one hand, is a man. She, on the other hand, is a woman. The very fact that Jesus spoke to a woman, let alone a woman of Samaria, was an amazing thing to this lady. Because you see, some of the Jewish rabbis taught that if you really wanted to be a rabbi, you didn't want to spend much time talking to women. Not even your wife. In fact, they taught that you could wind up in Gehenna spending too much time talking to your wife. Now, I won't go into the reason they were all male chauvinist pigs in those days, but you get the idea that the distance between a man and a woman in those days, in that culture, was enormous socially. And 
Nicodemus was a rabbi, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. The Sanhedrin was roughly the equivalent of our Senate and our House of Representatives all rolled into one. So this would be like uh, Al Gore, former senator, coming to talk to you. Or Trent Lott showing up for dinner. The fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, and you begin to understand then probably why he came by night, not to be visibly connected with Jesus quite yet. He's sort of feeling him out, sort of getting a, which way are the political winds blowing here? I mean, this guy, after all, is a ruler, he's a politician. And this woman, on the other hand, is, to put it mildly, a nobody. Nobody knows her name. She's no ruler. She's not a member of the establishment, the powers that be. And Nicodemus, on one hand, was a respected man, looked up to, envied by the people of Jerusalem because of his position and his power. Uh, This woman, on the other hand, the evidence seems to point, was not exactly in the same boat that she was ostracized, an outcast. And Nicodemus was morally straight, upholding the law of Moses, ordering his steps by that law. Morally speaking, he was straight as an arrow, and this woman morally was a mess. Do you understand the contrast between Nicodemus and this woman at the well of Samaria? As different as night and day. But yet, on another ground, they had one thing in common. They both desperately needed Christ. They desperately needed what Christ and Christ alone could give them. And that is the amazing thing about the New Testament in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it absolutely levels the field. You cannot say that Jesus, well, he came for this class or that class. You know, he came for all the bad people. It's funny how if you're a bad person, you think he came only for the good people. You know, he he doesn't come for folks like me. He comes for those good folks, those church-going folks. You know, they have the idea that everybody goes to church, got to be good, you know, by definition. You know, he just came for that crowd. And then, if you're the self-righteous bunch, you think, well, he didn't come for me. He came for that other crowd, the bad folks. You know, they're the ones that need things. I've got it. I've got my credentials and orders. They're the ones that need help. They're the ones that need saving, not me. But the fact of the matter is, is that Christ came to save the world. That's what John 3 has told us. And he calls all men unto himself, all to come for salvation, no matter whether they're the best that the earth has to offer or the worst that the world has to offer. You see the difference between any of us in this room today, morally speaking. It's so little, so slight, compared to the difference between us and God, morally speaking that it's really of no consequence. You can take the very best of us and the worst of us and set us side by side and say of both of us, we're sinners headed straight for hell, both in need of salvation that comes from the hand of Jesus. The best and the worst. It's almost like skunks arguing over who stinks the worst. When two sinners get together and talk about how one of them's more righteous than the other, that's really what you've got, an argument among skunks. You see, the whole thing is that Christ comes and calls all men to come to him and find life. And that was the scandalizing thing in the eyes of the Pharisees and the self-righteous. The fact that Jesus would not kowtow to them. The fact that they were not going to get special treatment. That Jesus called them on exactly the same grounds as he called the prostitutes and the publicans and the sinners. That Jesus would make no distinguishment, no matter how bad or how good a man perceived himself to be. He invited them all to come to him on exactly the same basis, the same ground, needing exactly the same thing. Now the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
all begin their account of the ministry of Christ in Galilee shortly after the imprisonment of John the Baptist by Herod. John, on the other hand, gives us a glimpse into an earlier ministry of Christ, a Judean ministry, not taking place up in the north of Israel around the Sea of Galilee, but down here in the south around the capital city of Jerusalem. He tells us of incidences that, like Nicodemus coming to him in the middle of the night that took place when Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. He tells us, for instance, as we just studied last week, that Jesus then withdrew out into the Judean countryside and he and his disciples began to baptize. Now John the Baptist is not in prison yet. He's still out there baptizing too. And that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing up the road apiece. John the Baptist and his disciples baptizing down here, but they're all baptizing in about the same region. And as we might expect, there was some jealousy that begin to arise among the disciples of John the Baptist as they perceive that things are beginning to go in Jesus' favor here. Notice our text in verse 1 of chapter 4. The Pharisees knew and learned that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John. Well, John's disciples didn't much like that idea. They're saying, wait a minute. He did come to you down there at the Jordan. You're the one who bore witness of him. Why, you're the one who baptized him, not vice versa. I think they were somewhat jealous for the reputation and the standing and the station of their master. And John the Baptist, as we see his humility come to the surface, says he must increase, but I must decrease. And decrease he did and decrease he would, for God providentially would have John soon cast into prison and eventually beheaded. And John's influence on the scene was removed providentially by the hand of God. But you see, John is relating to us incidences that take place really before the record of the Synoptic Gospel began. And Jesus, after this little foray into Judea, now goes back home. And to go from the south to the north of Israel, you've obviously got to go through the middle of Israel. If you don't know much about geometry, you at least know that. To go from the south to the north, you've got to go through the middle. Or you've got to make a long detour around it. And right smack dab between Judea in the south, where Jerusalem was, where Jesus is, and Galilee in the north, where he's headed, where home base is in Capernaum, Samaria sits right smack between them. It is said that some Jews so hated the Samaritans that instead of journeying through Samaria, they would, down here in Judea, cross the Jordan River over to the east, go up the east side of the Jordan River in what was called the Transjordan area. It's actually Gentile territory. They preferred the Gentiles to the Samaritans. And they would go up the Gentile side over on the east side of the Jordan, and when they got up into Galilee, they would cross right back over just south of the Sea of Galilee. They would take the long way around. It'd be like somebody in Alabama wanting to go to Kentucky, but they so hate the folks in Tennessee that they don't want to go through Tennessee. So what do you do? Well, you can either come all the way through Mississippi and cross, you know, over into Arkansas and Missouri and then cross back into Kentucky, or you could go the other way, I suppose. Or you could just grit your teeth and go through Tennessee as quickly as possible. Well, that's what most Jews did. Most Jews just grit their teeth and tried to get through Samaria as fast as they could. But you'll notice that our text says that he must needs go through Samaria. Geographically speaking, that's true. To get from Judea to Galilee, you've got to go through Samaria or you've got to take the long way around. But I believe the word must here, he must go through Samaria. It's to be understood, as John uses that phrase so often in the other gospel writers, that more times than not, when they speak of Jesus must do something, he must do it because it is ordained by God, his Father. There is a reason that he must do this. You remember at one time, as he was heading to Jerusalem for the last time, they came and warned him as he crossed into Herod's territory. He said, don't you understand that Herod's seeking your life? He wants to kill you. And Jesus says, will you go back and tell that fox Today I work cures, tomorrow I cast out demons, but I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be 
that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. In other words, I must go to Jerusalem. The old black preacher said, if I knew where I was going to die, I'd never go near the place. Jesus knew where he was going to die and he headed right straight for the place. You understand that there is this constantly in the life of Christ, that there is a schedule to keep, a timetable that has been imposed upon him by his Father. There are events that must take place. And so when it says that he must needs go through Samaria, I don't think it's just the fact that he had to go from point A to point B and so he had to go through the middle. But it is telling us that he has an appointment. There's a reason that he must go through Samaria. There is a reason that he will be at noon on this day sitting by a well outside a certain city of Samaria called Sychar. There's a reason. The reason is that there is an appointment with the most unlikely candidate you could imagine. For as Jesus is sitting there by the well, he looks up and sees this Samaritan woman carrying her water pot, walking out of the little village, out to the well. Now more about that in a moment. I wanted to give you just a little bit of insight into the Samaritans themselves. You probably know a little bit, you know, as I've described the geography of the situation where Samaria was in reference to the north and the south of Israel. But I want to try to give you a little insight into the animosity. I mean just the bigotry, the prejudice that had arisen over the centuries between the Jews and the Samaritans. So to understand that, you really have to go way back in Israel's history. You have to go back to the time when Israel split into two nations shortly after Solomon's death. Now we've studied that in the last few years, so I hope that you're up to speed on this. You remember that Rehoboam and Jeroboam, in the two divided nations, Rehoboam remained king over two tribes in the south called Judah, and Jeroboam became king of the northern Part, ten tribes called Israel. You recall how these two kingdoms existed side by side for many centuries. You had a king in the north, a king in the south. Then in 721 BC, because of the idolatry of that northern kingdom, God brought the Assyrians upon Israel and destroyed them, took them away into captivity. Now, the evidence is quite strong that not all of them were taken away. Just what we would say the better folks, the folks that were property owners, the folks that were business owners and so forth. They left the riffraff behind. It's clear from the history that follows that there are many Israelites living in that northern area. Before the destruction, however, of this northern kingdom by the Assyrians, one of the kings of Israel, King Omri, King Omri, in fact, was King Ahab. You know King Ahab from his encounters with Elijah his wife Jezebel, you know, click, click in your mind here. Omri was Ahab's father, and Omri had bought a hilltop, a piece of land that was on top of a hill, and he named the hill Samaria, and he built a new city on that hill to be the capital city of the land of that northern kingdom. Omri died before he completed it, but Ahab, his son, completed this, the building of this new capital city. So Samaria became to the northern kingdom of Israel what Jerusalem was to the southern kingdom of Judah. It was the capital city. So the name Samaria not only stuck to this city, but it also became a nickname by which you referred to everybody that lived up there in that northern kingdom. You could call them Israel or you could call them Samaria. So like we use the word Dixie to speak of the south. I don't know how that ever came about, tell you the truth. But when we say, well, I'm from Dixie, you know what I mean. doesn't mean we just drink out of Dixie cups. It's we're from a particular region of the country. To say that a man was from Samaria in those days simply meant he was from that northern kingdom. Now, the Bible tells us, it is in Second Kings chapter 17, that when the Assyrians took away, again, the most, the upper crust, property owners, people that had businesses, when they deported these people, and place them elsewhere in the Assyrian Empire, they also brought 
people from five different cities. Babylon was one of them, four others you've never heard of. But they brought foreigners from these five Assyrian cities to populate or repopulate this land called Samaria. So you get the idea? They were captured, subjugated by the Assyrians. The Assyrians carried off lock, stock, and barrel, all the people that were worth anything elsewhere to resettle them elsewhere in their empire. And they brought foreigners, people they had conquered, to resettle that land. So you've got this situation. You've got some of the Israelites left behind who weren't worth taking anywhere else. Then you've got new folks, foreigners, that had been brought there, deported from their homeland to resettle this area. Now you can well imagine what happened then over the next few generations is there's a lot of intermarriage that's going to go on between these two groups. So the Samaritans, as far as the true Israelite was concerned, was a mongrel bunch, a mongrel group of people. Well, they were about what the Europeans think of us as Americans. I don't know if you realize it or not, but a lot of Europeans look at us as a very deficient, degenerate race of people over here in America. You know, we think of ourselves as the melting pot of the nations, and we're sort of proud of it. But to the blue bloods, you know, the people who are pure French or pure German or whatever they are, they look at us and say, we're just a bunch of mongrels. I mean, we don't really know what we are. We're so mixed and mingled. Well, that's exactly how the Jews looked at the Samaritans. Their genealogies were all messed up. They weren't pure Israelites. They were, to use a word that has come to us in our dealings with the Indians, they were half-breeds. Didn't quite measure up. They weren't pure blue blood of the stock of Israel. And not only were they degenerates in physically speaking, as far as their bloodline was concerned, they were also degenerates spiritually speaking. Did you see this bunch that they brought in from these foreign cities, these five Assyrian cities? They didn't worship the God of Israel. In fact, you can read there, they had a plague of lions that broke out on them because they weren't worshiping God. So they said, well, we need to be taught the way of God And eventually a religion began to form in Samaria, a religion that has as its distinctive this, that they only believe that the books of the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, the books of law, the books of Moses, they only believe that those five, first five books of the Bible were canonical. Now, Brother George has been talking about the doctrine of Scripture on Monday night. He will finish that tomorrow night, a week from Monday night, I'm going to be beginning a study on what is called the canon of Scripture. Now, these canons are not ones you shoot. The word canon literally means the rule. That is, when we talk of the canon of Scripture, we mean what books comprise the sacred book. What books are considered to be authentic and authoritative as opposed to those that are spurious. Well, the Samaritans said, we only hold five books in our Bible. All the rest have been added by the later men. They're, you know, the productions of Latter-day Saints. We hold to the original five books of Moses and that alone. Okay? Get the picture? Now, you say, well, what practical difference would that make? Well, it made one big difference. Jerusalem, as the center of worship in Israel, only came about much, much later than Moses' day. Do you remember it was really in David's day that they finally captured this Jebusite city they called Jerusalem. It was was actually a Canaanite city till up in the days of David, much later than Moses. And that's where the Jews, the Israelites, built their temple and established the one place of worship to Jehovah. Now, the Samaritans said, that's a later addition. You know, we don't, we don't believe that what David did was authoritative. So what they began to do was to search the law looking for where the early guys worshipped. And where they, what they found was that Abraham, when he first entered Canaan, boy, here's some Bible trivia for you. Anybody know where Abraham first settled when he first came in to the land of Canaan? The first place, in fact, that Abraham built an altar. Well, it was at a place called Shechem. 
Shechem sit right in a pass in a valley between two tall mountains, well, as big a mountains as Israel has. Over on the north side of the pass was a mountain called Mount Ebal. Over on the south side of the pass was a mountain called Mount Gerizim. Shechem sat on the shoulder of Mount Gerizim as it went down in this pass, in this valley. That was the original place that Abraham settled and the first place in the land of Canaan that Abraham had an altar and offered sacrifices to God. Do you begin to see the wheels turn in the minds of Samaritans? Since especially that's where the Samaritans were settled, was right in that past, right in that general area, they're saying, well, wait a minute, we've got the ancient site. You Israelites, you Jews down there in Jerusalem, you've got the Johnny-come-lately site that was built, you know, in David's day, in Solomon's day, but we've got the first place that an altar was built. Not only did Abraham settle there, but Jacob, when he came back from his uncle Laban's place, you remember, worked seven years for Rachel, seven, or actually Leah, I don't know how that happened, but anyway, it was seven years for Leah, seven years for, and they called, they said she had bad eyes. <clears throat> anyway, seven years for Leah, seven years for Rachel, and then another seven years for his flocks and his herds, and he comes back and he meets his brother Esau and he placates him with the gifts of flocks and herds. You know the story. Do you know where Jacob goes? He goes right back to this area, Shechem, and he buys him a parcel of land, and he lives there. So the Samaritans are saying, well, we've got the original place. We've got the old-time religion. I know, you know it seems all old to us, but they're saying, look, our, our sacred spot, this is where Abraham built an altar when he first came to Canaan a thousand years before David lived, before David knew of this place you call Jerusalem and built a temple there. Do you understand the Samaritans' reasoning? We've got the old one. We've got the original one right here, right here in this mountain pass between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. So the Samaritans built them a temple, not down on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim. Oh, I should also add, if you like to play Bible trivia, you might need to know this, that when the Israelites were to come into the land of Canaan, you'll find this in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells half of the Levites to get up on Mount Ebal, half of the Levites to get up on Mount Gerizim, and the half that are up on Mount Ebal are to shout down the curses of the law on the people as they come through this pass. And the ones on Mount Gerizim are to shout down to the people the blessings of the law. So again, the Samaritans say, see, it's Mount Gerizim where the good stuff takes place. That's where we ought to be worshiping God. That's the place that God intends for us to worship his name. So they built a temple up on Mount Gerizim and rejected the temple in Jerusalem. Well, that went on for several centuries, and then about a hundred years before Jesus, one of the Jewish rulers got an army together and went down there and uh, destroyed their temple. And so when Jesus is his day, there is no temple upon Mount Gerizim, but it's still a place of worship. It's still where the Samaritans worship God. And to your great surprise, no doubt, you might be interested in knowing that there are still Samaritans today there are a few hundred Samaritans still worshiping their old way. Part of them are in the city of Nablus, which is the new name for the ancient city of Shechem. And part of them are in Jaffe, which is a suburb of Tel Aviv these days. But there are a few hundred. They even have their own high priest and everything, their old sacred scrolls and writings. The sect of the Samaritans still exists even to this day. That is a rather amazing fact. Now, do you begin then to understand the animosity that grew over the years between the Samaritans and the Jews of the hatred and the bigotry that one side is looking at the other and rejecting their respective places of worship? Both are saying you're worshiping in an unauthorized way and in an unauthorized place and we've got the real one. We've got the only spot where God will accept sacrifice, where God will hear our prayers. We've got it and you don't. Jesus. The very fact I mentioned that he's talking to a Samaritan woman is quite amazing because the Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day have ruled that Samaritan women are unclean from the day of their birth. In other words, there is no such thing as a clean Samaritan woman. 
uh, the woman is quite right in her surprise that Jesus is even speaking to her. Now the location, the location of this village is a little village called Sychar. We see that in verse 5. It is said to be near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. I mentioned a moment ago that when Jacob came back from Uncle Laban's place in Mesopotamia, this is where he came. Sychar is near this place where Jacob bought this piece of ground. We find, indeed, that when Joseph's bones were brought back from Egypt, You remember Joseph gave commandments concerning his bones that when the children of Israel went back from Egypt to Canaan, they were to take his bones with them and bury him there. Guess where they buried him? They buried him on this parcel of ground near this city of Sychar that Jacob gave to Joseph. Do you understand the antiquity of this place? I I hope I'm getting that across to you. The history of... That these Samaritans can look back and say things happened right here and they happened right here a thousand years ago. They happened right here two thousand years ago when Abraham and Jacob were still walking around. This place has special significance. And the Jews down at Jerusalem were saying that's all a bunch of baloney, a bunch of nonsense. Our place has special significance. So you understand the history that's connected here. It's also said to take place at a well. Verse 6, Jacob's well. Now, Genesis does not tell us of Jacob digging any wells. Isaac dug a lot of wells. We have the record there. But this well is not recorded in Scripture, although you could well understand that if Jacob had to buy this piece of land to have a place to live, he probably had to dig a well to get water. So this is a well that goes way back in history. In fact, if you might be interested in knowing the place is well known today there's an unfinished church that sits right on top of this place that is Jacob's well we're as certain as you can be about these things that this is in fact the very spot where Jesus sat and talked with this woman from Samaria the well is still there today Jesus is alone. His disciples have gone into the village to buy food. The Samaritans, since they did keep the first five books of the law, did keep what was called, what we call the kosher law of the Jews. So it was okay to buy food from Samaritans. So that was pretty nice, because Israelites going back and forth between Galilee and Judea, at least they could stop and buy food from the Samaritans. They might not want to, might not like to, but that meant that you had a place to get food. Okay, But one thing that a Jew would not do is eat with a Samaritan. Would not share utensils with a Samaritan. So we'll buy your food, but we won't sit down and eat with you. The disciples have gone into town to buy food to bring it back out to the well for Jesus to eat. And as they are gone, a woman of Samaria comes bearing her water pot, walking several hundred yards out of the village down to this well to get water. Now the fact that she comes all by herself in the middle of the day around noon, the sixth hour, John tells us, in itself speaks volumes. For you see, it was the custom in that day for the women of a village to get together first thing in the morning and all walk out to the well, taking their water pots with them to draw the water for the day's needs. Not only did it allow them to go as a group and do their work together, but of course, try not to sound too much like a male chauvinist pig, it allowed them to catch up on all the news, swap stories, what's going on with everybody's family and everybody's kids. You know what I'm talking about. You ladies, I'm sure, understand. This is the time for socializing. This is when you get to share information of what's going on in the town. Okay? And they did that first thing in the morning. Not in the heat of the day. It's ridiculous. You needed the water early in the morning. The fact that this woman comes out all alone 
indicates to us that she is somewhat of an outcast. She has been ostracized, as it were, from respectable society. You will notice in our text that she does not, nay, she would not have approached Christ. This is one of the remarkable things about the ministry of Christ. And and this incident, by the way, has been studied and studied and studied as a pattern, as an example of doing personal work, personal evangelism. And it it, it certainly yields some wonderful little nuggets here of how do we approach the lost? How, How did Jesus do it? How did he deal with people? And you'll notice here that she does not first approach him. She wasn't going to say anything to him. She knew who he was by his dress. She knew he was a Jew. But Jesus first approached her and approached her, shall we say, in quite a neutral way. He simply asked her to give him a drink of water. Now, you'd have to be pretty cruel if you just drawn some water yourself, when somebody was sitting there thirsty and hot, to not give them a drink of water. Right? I mean, that, that's pretty cruel. This is, shall we say, one of the least common courtesies. Almost anyone would do this for you or for someone else, or you would do it for someone else. Here is a need that we all recognize. We all know what it's like to be thirsty and hot We all know what it's like to be craving water. And so there's a sympathetic thing here that we appeal to one another when we ask, would you give me a drink of water? Well, when she does, she is he does, she is immediately surprised for she says, how is it that you, a Jew, are talking to me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Or literally, the Greek can be translated, the Jews do not share utensils with the Samaritans. And it's back to this idea that they wouldn't share the same eating vessel. And Jesus responds, and I would close with this this morning. I realize we're just getting a lot of background information this morning. But oh my, verse 10, what a wonderful verse. Three points Jesus makes. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink. Number two, thou wouldest ask of him. And number three, he would have given thee living water. Think of those three phrases. If you knew. You would ask, and I'd give. Can we think on that just for a moment? If you knew, if you knew. Jesus is mentioning, pointing out the fact that she's ignorant about some things. She's ignorant about this thing called living water, this gift of God. She's ignorant about who it is that she's talking to. She doesn't know. She's ignorant, most of all, of her need for this water. I know today we are, the whole church growth movement is predicated upon appealing to the felt needs of your listener. The idea is the church gets a group of people together and says, now what do you feel that you need? And people say, well, we need this and we need this. And then the church tries to meet those needs. May I tell you the truth of the matter? is that nine times out of ten, and I think more than that in the day and times in which we live, the people to whom we first meet and speak and talk do not know their need. The whole problem is, is that they do not feel the need. They don't know that they're thirsty, and they don't know what they're thirsty for. Do you understand what I'm saying? They don't feel that need. Now, they seem to indicate that to anybody else. It's amazing that we can look around and uh, you ask the question, well, what do you want? What are you thirsty for? I know we wouldn't phrase it like that, but let's, because of the language of the text, let's ask the question that. Let's go to our lost friends and say to them, what is it that you're thirsty for? What do you crave? 
What are you after in life? And you know what they'll answer? Again, they won't use these words, but you can sum it up like this. They'll say, we're wanting more. That's what's driving us. That's what we're after. That's what we're craving. We want more. You say, more what? More money. More leisure time. More stuff. More respect. More authority and prestige. We want more. We're thirsty for more. Isaiah summed it up very nicely in a wonderful allegory. He speaks of men. He talks about in the days of the Messiah that the mirage would become a pool. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a wonderful sermon entitled, The Mirage Shall Become a Pool. And he's quoting Isaiah, speaking of the fact that men are like people out in the desert and, and they see the mirage over here on the horizon. They're thirsting to death and they see that which looks like water out there and they, and they go for it with all their might. And then they get there, and of course you know how mirages work. You get there and there's nothing there. But there's now a mirage over here, so we go chase that one a while and we spend our days, as it were, thirsting, craving something that we can never find. Chasing mirages. Solomon, and I think one of the reasons, the question of the canonicity, use a big word, the canonicity of the book of Ecclesiastes came into question by the Jews when they were trying to decide their canon of scriptures. One of the reasons that the book of Ecclesiastes, I think, speaks to us and is certainly the word of God is that it speaks of this fact of Solomon, the king, who's got it all, saying, you know, I, I, most of us don't have it all, never will have it all. Right? I mean, Solomon had all the stuff. You and I won't ever have all the stuff, but he was king in the heyday of Israel. He had all the entertainment. You and I won't have it. He had all the women. You think chasing women's going to satisfy you? He said, take it from me. I had 300 wives, 700 concubines, a thousand women. Do you understand what I'm saying? That the very things that men say are going to slake my thirst. Solomon had it all and he says, trust me, I've been there. It won't do it for you. All is vanity. It's vexation of spirit. It leaves you empty. So trust me. It's I've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. Men are thirsty. And they don't even know. They don't know what for. They know they're after something, but they don't know what it is, and they don't know what will satisfy it. And they think more. It's like people trying to slake thirst by drinking more salt water. And the more you drink, the thirstier you are. What is it the proverb said? The eyes are never satisfied. Never satisfied. Always want, want, want. And so you understand that Jesus first is approaching this lady on this terms, if you knew. If you knew. And part of our job in professing and proclaiming the gospel is to point out to men that they're thirsty and what they're thirsting for. What it is that will satisfy the longing, the thirsting of their soul. Because they don't know. Secondly, he says, if you knew, you would have asked. Now, I said a moment ago that asking for water is about as simple a courtesy as we could possibly ask someone for. You'll notice that Jesus, when he asked her, I mean, he's just asked her, right? He broke through all of these cultural and social barriers to ask her for a drink of water. And he says, if you knew... Who he's talking to, if you knew what this gift of God was, you'd ask. You'd break through the boundaries, the barriers, and you'd ask. Now notice Jesus didn't offer to buy a drink of water. 
He didn't say, well, let me, do, let me carry your pot for you so I can earn a drink of water. He just asked. He just asked. Do, do you understand that what he's doing, he's turning around what he has just done. He has just asked her for water. And he's saying, if you just knew what the real situation was, you'd do what I've done. You'd ask. In other words, what he's implying here is the water is free. It's free. You don't have to buy the water. You don't have to earn the water. It's a free drink of water. Oh, I'm thinking, again, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, how many lights and bells and whistles ought to be going off in your mind of when the prophet spoke of the days of the Messiah's streams of living water flowing in the deserts. The deserts turned into oases. Living water flowing out of Jerusalem, Ezekiel describes all of these, all of these prophecies that Christ is saying, as He's going to say in John 7, as He's in Jerusalem on the last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, when the Jews would take these great barrels of water, pouring them over the altar, trying to recreate the situation out in the wilderness when Moses struck that rock and water flowed for it. And they're sort of going through a, a pantomime or a play to recreate it. And they're in the midst of pouring these great barrels of water and Jesus stands from the crowd and says, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Are you thirsty? Do you want the reality of what is being depicted here in this pageant? Come to me. And Isaiah again, as it were, two caravans, so Roth Barnard saw it this way. He says, like two caravans passing each other out in the desert. And one of them, a guy over here in this one, is calling over to the other. Hey, over there. Anybody thirsty? Why don't you come over here and get some water? We've got some water. Oh, Isaiah puts it in a little other words. He says, oh, to everyone that thirsts, let him come to the water and drink. Do you want any water? And he says, a man on the other side says, no, we don't want your water. We're not thirsty. He says, I'm not talking to you. Anybody thirsty? Come get you a drink of water. And that's what Christ is saying to her. It's free. Don't you want to drink? If you knew, you'd asked. And oh my, I'd give it. I'd give it. Oh, Jesus, you don't, you don't mean that. You don't know who you're talking to here. You just, you don't understand this, this woman. You don't know about her moral background. You don't know about her messed up genealogy. You, you just don't really understand who this woman is, my friend. That's the amazing thing. It really didn't matter. He came. Why did he come? What's his purpose in this world? That's what John told us back in John 3. He didn't come to condemn the world, to destroy the world, to judge the world. He came that it might have life. That he might save the world. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I've come, says Jesus, that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. I've come to give water. That's why I'm here. Oh, if you knew, you'd ask, and I'd give it. That's my purpose. That's the purpose of my mission. So do you want some water? Water. You know, I know about this because I've seen the westerns again, but I sort of depict that fella, you know, crawling across the desert. You know, you've seen him in the hot sun. And as he's coming near the other people, well, what's he crawling for? What's he crying Diet Coke! No! Because when you're dying of thirst, there's only one thing you want. Water. Water. Again, Isaiah, in laying the charge against Israel, God says through Isaiah, My people have forsaken me. They've committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've hewn out cisterns, leaking cisterns that hold no water. And my friend, 
if you reject Christ. That's precisely the description of you. To reject He who came to give life, gives this living water, and to try then to hew out of rock a cistern that leaks, and the more water you put in, it just leaks out. Is that not a good illustration of how men live their lives? They're trying to fill their cistern up, you know, and for a little while they've got a little happiness here. They've got a little joy, a little satisfaction. Tomorrow they come back and it's all leaked out. Because you see, earthly satisfaction is like that. You can't keep it. You can't hold it. Everything you've got in life, you're either going to lose it or you're going to leave it. You can't take it with you. You can't hold on to it. The thief breaks in and steals. The moth eats it up. The rust corrupts it. Earthly satisfaction, earthly water, if you will, just doesn't quench the thirsting of the soul. But what Christ is offering to this woman is living water. Drink this water and you'll never thirst again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for sending him into this world and for what he's done for us. Father, in giving us the very water of life, giving us satisfaction and meaning, purpose, existence, and slaking, Father, the very thirsting of our soul. Oh, Father, we think of those men that have gone before that have sought to describe this thirsting, this restlessness in the soul of man. But, Father, thank you that we can come to Christ and we can find that that truly satisfies. Oh, we may thirst for more of that water. We want more as the deer pants at the water brooks. For the water brooks, so we thirst for more of Him. But, oh, Father, we found that which satisfies our soul. And we no longer thirst for that water that doesn't satisfy. We're content if we have You. Satisfied if we may know You. Father, deal with our hearts. If there's some here today who know you not, may you deal with their soul. Draw them unto Christ. May they come. Whosoever will, let him come. Take of the water of life freely. Thank you that you sent your Son to give us this life. For it's in him we pray. Amen.